Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your goodness, and thanks for your love and your grace and your mercy. And Lord, we do, seriously, thank you that you are in control of all things. Our very lives and this very planet. How amazing you are, Lord. So we, we don't want to take it lightly. We want to give your word the honor that it deserves. And we pray, Lord, that um, you would guide us now by your spirit through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So turn, if you would, to Ezekiel chapter 38. I will tell you, Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39 go together, but we're going to spend two weeks doing them. Um, hopefully by the end of it, you'll say, wow, that deserves two weeks. Um, you'll either say, wow, that deserves two weeks, or you'll say, wow, I'm glad he didn't read 39. But as you're doing that, if you would, stick your finger in there and turn over to the right to John 21. And I'll just warn you now, uh, there's a lot of background in this chapter, there's a lot of introduction, and there's a lot of sort of painting a picture, so I'm going to try hard to paint an accurate picture as best as I can. Um, you can pray that I don't mess it up, because uh, these, these chapters are highly significant. I mean, they're all highly significant, but these are just a little bit um, overwhelming, honestly. John 21, starting in verse 24. I'm sorry, John 20, starting in verse 24. wrote my notes wrong. So, John 20, the context is Jesus is uh, risen, right? And he's appeared to a few folks, and uh, Thomas, he hasn't appeared yet to, and we call Thomas, what, what's... What's Thomas's first name? Doubting. doubting. Thomas really is his last name, uh, but Doubting is his first name. We all know that. Now, Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. And the other disciples, them, therefore, sent, said to him, we've seen the Lord. So he said, you know the story. Unless I see his hands, the print of the nails, and put my finger into his, the print of his nails, into the print of the nails, and put my hand in his side, I won't believe. And then you know the story, right? Uh, after eight days, his disciples were again inside, Thomas with them this time. Jesus came, the doors being shut, stood in the midst, said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands. Reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, This is what I want us to harp on now. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed, right? We know that story, right? And so we are those who have not put our hands in Jesus' uh, hands or his side, and yet we believe, right? So we say we're blessed, right? And I'd like to think of myself as a man of great faith, right? But is there a part of me that's like, man, I wish I could have done that? Right? Raise your hand if you've ever thought. Yeah. It would have been pretty cool to stick my finger in his hands and say, yep, that's him. <laughs> right? And you'd feel um, sort of built up in your faith. Right? 
Well, let me say this. Today, prophetically, we're going to stick our hands in his we're going to stick our fingers in his hands. Prophetically, we're going to stick our hands in his side. And that's how I see it. Our grandparents couldn't read the chapter we're going to read today with as much of the Thomas effect as we will. And it's to me it's hugely dramatic how uh, how pertinent this chapter is. Fair enough? That's the build-up. So we're going to read about a battle, a pretty big battle. And so just to kind of put things in order, we're going to put things in order a little bit. We've done this the last several weeks. Uh, first really half, if you will, of Ezekiel is Ezekiel prophesying to a group of captives that are in Babylon. They've been carried off from Judah. They were carried off in 597 B.C., He's prophesying to them, hey, by the way, the Babylonians are going to come and make a final uh, demise of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. So the timing here is written sometime between 597 and 586 B.C. And the events he's talking about are all yet future. So the second half of the book of Ezekiel, he's talking about future uh, blessing on the nation of Israel specifically. Okay? And so... Again, if you're in 597, that window 597 to 586 B.C., basically everything is yet future, right? And yet for us, because we're future from that, we have to kind of put ourselves in sort of a bit of a timeline. Fair enough? And so the timeline, think of it like this. Uh, There's the captivity in Babylon. After 70 years of captivity in Babylon, according to the prophet Jeremiah, the Jewish people are going to return to Jerusalem. We saw that under the Persians and the reign of King Cyrus. He for sure released them. You read that in Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, very specifically recorded there. Uh, Then they hang out there in Jerusalem and and reoccupy the land of Judah. And that goes on. We then uh, timeline forward to the time, the next kind of really piece on the timeline that we see is the time of Jesus, right? During the time of Jesus, by now, the Romans have taken over, right? And they're occupying the land. And then in 70 AD, the Romans destroy the land and the nation of Israel ceases to exist. Again, I'll say it as dramatic as I can because it's incredibly dramatic. The nation of Israel ceases to exist from 70 AD until 1948. And at 1948, we see the regathering of the people of Israel, the Jewish people. They regather their nation, their culture, their language, their religion, right? Have you met any Assyrians lately? No, but you've met Jews, right? Have you met any Hittites? Philistines? Medes? Babylonians? But Jews, right? So it's, it's nothing short of an of a incredible historical miracle that the nation of Israel exists today and oh by the way is on the front page of the news all the time right so that's 1948 and then in 1948 we fast forward the next major event prophetically is going to be the rapture of the church I believe and then after that there's going to be a seven-year tribulation period after that uh, Jesus comes back sets foot on planet earth and uh, sets up his millennial kingdom during which he's going to reign for a thousand years Satan will be bound 
And at the end of that thousand years, Satan is released for a brief time and uh, finally is cast into the lake of fire. And then there's heaven and hell eternally. And uh, we go to heaven and uh, those who uh, have called on Jesus for their salvation spend eternity then in heaven. And unfortunately, those that don't spend eternity in hell. And that's the prophetic timeline. But keep in mind, if you're in 597 BC, all of that is yet future. Okay, so we're going to read about one. We're going to read about a battle today. It's it's really one of three main prophetic battles in Scripture, and I want to read briefly the account of the other two. Okay, so we can kind of put it in perspective because sometimes people confuse the battle of Ezekiel 38 and 39 with one of the battles that we're going to read about in Revelation. Is that fair enough? Okay, so turn if you would over to uh, Revelation chapter 19. So since I gave you that timeline, okay, uh, Revelation, the, the bulk of Revelation, honestly, really from chapter 6 through 18 uh, and into 19 a little bit, describes that tribulation period, okay? And then at the, toward the end of chapter 19, in chapter 18, the Babylon, uh, system of, of Babylon, the, the, basically the world economic system is, is fallen. Uh, chapter 19, uh, we see Jesus come back and we, um, we pick it up in verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. So who's this? This is Jesus. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were, crown, were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Right? John chapter 1, the same guy that wrote Revelation, tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. His name was uh, the Word of God. And it goes on, uh, verse 14. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on, a white, on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of, his fierce, of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and in his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So he's coming down to do battle. Okay? Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. So there's going to be apparently a lot of death for the birds to scavenge. And I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, the kings of the earth, their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of, the burning, of fire burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with a sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. So this is what is commonly known as the Battle of Armageddon. Okay? You've heard that term, the Battle of Armageddon. This is when Jesus comes back at the end of a seven-year tribulation period and basically sets things in order and uh, establishes his, his thousand-year reign. 
We read on. Then I, chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that's Satan, the, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. So you get the idea. For a thousand years, Jesus is going to reign. He's, he's established uh, the order at the Battle of Armageddon at the end, end of chapter 19. Moving into chapter 20, he sets up his thousand-year reign while he reigns, and Satan is bound up uh, with a great chain in the bottomless pit and set a seal on it. So Satan cannot deceive uh, anymore. But then if you flip over to chapter 21, verse 7, now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, take note of that, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth, on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And that's a sad state, but that's the truth of Scripture. Okay, turn back to Ezekiel. So there's three main battles. There's the battle of Ezekiel 38 and 39 that we're going to read about today. There's the battle of Armageddon that's at the, in Revelation uh, chapter 19 at the end of the tribulation period, the seven-year tribulation period. And then after a thousand years, there's another brief battle with uh, Satan as he's released and he causes a, a brief time of deception and then he is finally cast in the lake of fire. So we see three different things. And the reason I point this out is because some people, that last one that I just described, because in there it's, there's a reference to Gog and Magog, some people confuse the battle of Ezekiel 38 with one of these two battles that we just read about. And I believe, as I've read, and believe me, I've read a ton of commentators on this whole thing. I'm just trying to synthesize them with what I know of Scripture and what they all make sense and people that I respect that are a lot smarter than I am about this. Um, that this battle in chapter 38 and 39 is distinct from those two. And furthermore, this battle in chapter 38 and 39 could happen today. And that's the point that's relevant for us. This battle could happen today. Okay? And as we see, as we read about it, by the end of it, hopefully you're going to say, whoa, this battle could happen today. Okay? Does that make sense? Am I dramatic enough? Yeah. Should I be more dramatic? No. No. Okay. Oh, that's good. What if I want to be? Uh, but anyway, okay, go ahead. Thank you for the freedom. I feel very free. So, because Gog and Magog is mentioned at the, at the last battle, sometimes that's confusing, okay? Now, you may recall from various pieces of prophetic literature in the Scripture, there's sort of, a, of an early acknowledgement and a later acknowledgement, a partial fulfillment and a later fulfillment, right? For example, Malachi in the Old Testament tells us that Elijah must come, for, come back before Jesus does. Fair enough? Well, and Jesus himself in the gospel said that was John the Baptist, right? But there's lots of 
biblical grounds to say, well, that was a partial fulfillment. And Jesus didn't elaborate on it necessarily, right? He just mentioned it in passing. But there's going to be two witnesses that come back during the tribulation period. Uh, Many say one of them is Elijah. And sure enough, if that's the case, then Elijah comes back before Jesus comes back in Revelation 19. And so in many cases, there's an early reference and a later reference. So the fact that we see Gog and Magog mentioned in Revelation uh, chapter 20 doesn't negate the fact that this is a separate battle that we're going to read about in Ezekiel 38. Fair enough? Everybody good? Anybody okay if I read Ezekiel 38? All right, let's go. Now, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. Okay, so here we go. We're setting it up. And by the way, we currently live, think about it in terms of the timeline. We currently are living, if you think about this, maybe think of it like this. We're living between Ezekiel 37 and Ezekiel 38. Presently. 2022 happens to fall between 1948, which is really the, the, the dry bones coming to life described in Ezekiel 37. We made the case last week. That is really a picture of what happened in 1948 when the nation was reborn. Okay, And chapter 38 Pretty clearly, there's enough specificity here to say that it hasn't happened yet. So we're living between 37 and 38. And so it starts out that uh, God uh, wants Ezekiel to prophesy against this guy, this, this Gog of the land of Magog. Now, Gog is sometimes, uh, some commentators think of it as an adjective, some, uh, but most uh, that I would uh, give credibility to would say uh, this, is a, this is a real person. Okay, this is a real person uh, that we're going to call Gog of the land of Magog. The word Magog just means the land of God is how it's translated. Some say Gog is a, is a demon. Okay, like you say, you notice here it says uh, Gog is the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, right? Well, you could make a case for that. Um, we read about the prince of Tyre in Ezekiel 28. Clearly, that was a reference to Satan, as we read the context there. You can refer you back to there. In Daniel chapter 10, an angel comes and says that he was fighting the prince of Persia, the demonic uh, force, the, the, the demon, basically, that was entrusted to the land of Persia and, uh, and all of that. But as it plays out, and we have to sort of read Scripture in the context that it's written and all of that, probably the best explanation is this is a very real person. And again, we're trying to keep these, you know, as, as literal as we can, wherever we can. And so this is probably a real person uh, that the Bible refers to as Gog of the land of Magog. It may just be that he's influenced by uh, such demonic forces that, you know, we're giving him this kind of a name. So he's the Prince of Rosh. Now, in the interest of time, I won't go through I mean, when you start to read these things, right, and study these things, and I could give you 10 different Bible experts that uh, all describe it, and uh, they go through such detailed history of the origin of the names and, and all of this at, that, frankly, it makes you dizzy, okay? And I make you dizzy enough, so I'm not going to try to make you dizzy. Um, but the bottom line is, 
almost all of them come up with the same conclusion. Rosh is Russia. Okay? Rosh is Russia. Meshach and Tubal uh, are, most folks say, is kind of part of Russia, part of Ukraine, maybe extending into Georgia even. Tubal is uh, a reference to Turkey. And so really what you have here, uh, Rosh, Meshach, Tubal, we're talking about Russia, Ukraine, Turkey. Okay? Fair enough? Okay. And again, if you want references, I can give you tons of them. God says, I want you to prophesy against those gods, those guys. He goes on, I will turn you around. I'm going to put hooks in your jaws and lead you out <clears throat> with all your army, horses, and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. So we've got a pretty great army, a collaboration of nations, we'll say, that are going to invade Israel, but God sees the whole thing. God says, I am against you. Can I tell you, you never, ever, ever want God to be against you. And as far back as Genesis chapter 12, God told Abraham, I'm going to birth a nation out of you. We know it to be the Jewish people. I'm going to birth a nation out of you, and he who blesses you will be blessed, and he who curses you will be cursed. These are all nations that are coming against the land of Israel. As we read it through, they're coming against Israel from all sides. There's going to be a battle that seems overwhelming, overwhelming odds against this small nation the size of New Jersey from all over the world in that area, guess who wins? The one that's on God's side. The one that's on God's side. So that's the punchline. Uh, we'll read on. Who else are we talking about? We're talking about verse 5. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are all with them, with shield and helmet. Gomer and all its troops, the house of Togarma, from the far north and all its troops, many people are with you. So Persia is another word for Iran. Okay, the, the nation we know as Iran was called Persia for many years and only, I believe, in this century became, uh, changed the name to Iran. Ethiopia, some of your Bible versions say Kush. This is modern-day Sudan. Libya is translated Libya. I'm just trying to lighten it up a little bit. <laughs> Gomer and Togarma is Turkey. So, what do we got going on? We got Russia. We got this guy Gog, the leader of Russia, coming against Israel with a coalition from Ukraine, from Turkey, from Sudan, from Iran, and from Libya. Anybody read the news this year? Is this conceivable? Yes. Think about this. We're, touch, we're putting our hands into the... I mean, we're like Thomas, prophetically. Putting our hands into his side. Right? I want you to get that. Yeah. I mean, our grandparents couldn't have read this scripture and have the hair on the back of their neck stick up like this. Right? So, Persia... Iran, 
Does Iran have any interest in uh, coming against Israel? They can't stand them. As a matter of fact, Iran, Sudan, Libya, Turkey, what do they have in common? They're all Muslims that hate the Jewish people. They hate Israel. Now, interestingly, Russia is not predominantly Muslim, but Russia would love to lead this coalition of Israel haters. Fair enough? Well, what's the, what's the trade-off? CNN, November 4th, 2022. Is that relevant? Headline, Iran seeking nuclear help from Russia in exchange for weapons. That's a headline. Secular headline, CNN. Not exactly a Christian publication. Right? Iran seeking nuclear help from Russia in exchange for weapons. Right? Iran would love to blow up Israel. They need help to do it. Where does help come from? Help comes from Russia. Is Russia in a position right now where they might need help from some allies? Yeah. Yeah. Is this relevant? Yeah, it's relevant. Is the Bible relevant? No, it's just old-fashioned, right? This doesn't speak to anything today. What does the Bible know? What are, you know, it's written by many different people over many p- different years. You know, there's lots of ways you could interpret it, right? Give me a break, right? This Bible's relevant, okay? So, Iran would love to blow up Israel. Sudan would love to blow up Israel. Libya would love to blow up Israel. Interestingly, Turkey has a recent, recently interesting history. They were, tr- they were trying to be a part of the EU for years, trying to kind of negotiate with the EU. In 2016, that, those negotiations broke down. And I don't know, I wasn't in those meetings. But anyway, those, those negotiations broke down. And so Turkey has now distanced itself from the EU and now seeks, guess who, as an ally instead? Russia. So the chess players are all in place, right? And so these alliances are in place. It's conceivable that at any time this could take place, really for the first time in history. So I want you to catch what we see. We see an assault from the north, Russia, from the south, Sudan, from the east, Iran, and from the west, Libya and Turkey. Israel will be surrounded. Israel will be surrounded. They all share a common hatred for Israel, at least the Middle Eastern nations. And Russia would love to be their ally. And notice uh, there in verse 8 I read, I'm sorry, in verse 6 I read, Gomer and all its troops from the house to Garma, and they're going to be from the far north. There's got a couple references here from the far north. You know, you think of, I don't know about you, when I think of geography, and again, I'm going to try to uh, do this for your benefit. If I think of Israel right here, and the Mediterranean Sea is right here, okay, right? Sudan's here, Libya's here, Turkey's here, right? Iran is here. I think of Russia as over here. Do you? I think of Russia as all this. You know what happens if you get a ruler out today? And you draw a line straight north of Jerusalem, okay? And I'll do, I'll do, the, do the math for you. You've got to move it to the east, 2.4 degrees longitude. You know what you run through? Moscow. Moscow. 
straight north. Actually, let's get a little more specific because the Bible's relevant. Let's call it far north. Moscow. Right? Is this relevant? Super relevant. Notice who's not mentioned. I think who's not mentioned is kind of curious, right? Egypt, Syria, and Jordan, who all fought with Israel in 1967 and wanted to overthrow Israel. Well, Syria's been distracted for the last several years by a civil war that's left them fairly immobilized, right? Egypt, interestingly, has not been the world-dominating power since God said so in Ezekiel chapters 29 to 32, right? Think about through the Bible. Man, Egypt is like, like Rome, right? Egypt, Egypt, Egypt. Egypt is the place to go for help. Egypt is like no disrespect. In modern news, Egypt's kind of an afterthought, right? And Jordan has decent relationships with Israel. So these aren't mentioned. Curiously, the United States isn't mentioned either. Anybody notice that? The United States isn't mentioned. Now, we like to think of ourselves as uh, the world needs us. But in the prophetic stage, the world doesn't need us. The United States is not mentioned, really. And there's, you know, and again, you know, I'm calling Rosh Russia. I'm calling, you know, these other nations by the, by the interpretations uh, that most people give them. But there's really no reference in the prophetic scripture that anybody could say, oh, yeah, that looks like the United States. There's nothing that looks like the United States in any way, shape, or form. Is that curious to anybody? Well, what about this? Could it be that the United States is so politically vulnerable and divided that as a world power, uh, our dominance is not sustainable? Could that be possible? Could be possible. Could it be the United States gets so indebted that they uh, implode economically? Anybody know what the national debt is right now? Me neither, but it's huge. (laughs) Right? Could it be, this is my personal favorite, if you will, could it be that this event happens immediately after the rapture of the church, and all of a sudden, there are a lot of Americans that are gone, right? You think about it. If every Christian is gone, which nation is probably one of the most affected nations on earth? by the lack of human beings, the United States, right? Much of Europe is going to go unnoticed in the rapture. Much of the Middle East, honestly, is going to go unnoticed in the rapture. Much of Russia is probably going to go, and the Far East, is probably going to go unnoticed in the rapture of the church. The United States becomes immediately powerless, right? So, the nations that are not mentioned in many ways are as significant as the nations that are mentioned. Verse 7, prepare yourself and be ready. You and all your companies that are gathered about you, he's still talking to, to Rosh, or to Gog, Prince of Rosh, and be a guard for them. After many days, you'll be visited. In the latter years, so he's telling us this is during the last days. And I believe we are currently in the last days. After, in the latter years, you will come to the land 
of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel. So that's the regathering of the nation of Israel. We read about that in Ezekiel 37. It happened, in, uh, we know, to be historically in 1948, which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. I want you to notice that word, safely. We're going to read that a few times. You will ascend, coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all your troops and many peoples with you. So God is still speaking to this guy Gog. He says you're going to come to a land of those uh, gathered from many people, and that is the regathered nation of Israel. You're going to come. You're going to ascend, coming like a storm. Again, this can be from north, south, east, and west. A huge coalition of, of international powerhouses coming against the nation of Israel. And it says the people of Israel there are dwelling safely. We'll read again in verse 11 that they dwell safely. We'll read again in verse 14 that they dwell safely. So what does this mean, dwelling safely? Well, there's different applications of this or different understandings of this. Some would say because Israel has established their national sovereignty. You know, they've had uh, several attempts at other nations to try to overthrow them and displace the, the nation of Israel and cause it not to be a nation again. That's happened since 1948, right? The fact that they are still a nation, we could interpret that as they dwell safely, okay? Personally, I wouldn't call what they're doing now as dwelling safely. I think there's enough antagonism to the nation of Israel that I don't know that I would call it uh, dwelling safely. But um, there's a possibility that as you read through the book of Revelation, you see that immediately after the rapture of the church, the Antichrist rises to power. And as the Antichrist rises to power, again, we're talking about a seven-year period, the Antichrist is going to rise to power for a seven-year period, and basically the first thing the Antichrist is going to do is going to bring peace. Now, picture the rapture of the church. America's gone, right? I mean, think about all that, and again, I'm not, I'm not a world mover expert, okay? But I'm going to imagine that there's a lot of stability in Europe, in the Middle East, that's influenced at least somewhat, and even now in Ukraine, that's influenced at least a bit somewhat by the United States. Is that fair enough? It's not like the world depends on the United States, but the United States, to be fair, is probably keeping a lot of things at bay. Fair enough? So I believe there's a, there's a very real scenario. Church is raptured. You got a little more room for chaos across the ocean. You got an urgent need for world peace across the ocean. The Antichrist rises up. I mean, he's not going to be a guy in a red suit and a pitchfork. He's going to be very smooth, very smooth. And one of the things he's going to do is he's going to make a covenant, as described in Revelation, he's going to make a covenant with the Jewish people. He's going to say, I got you. I got your back. He's going to allow them to rebuild their temple. I got your back. Everything's good. As that temple gets rebuilt, midway through the tribulation period, he's going to say, actually, that covenant of peace, I was deceiving you. 
and he goes into the temple, into the Holy of Holies. Again, we talk about early fulfillment and later fulfillments. Antiochus Epiphanes, back way before Jesus, did this in the temple. He goes into the, into the Holy of Holies and basically desecrates the temple and demands to be worshipped as God. At that point, if you're a Jewish person who's been counting on this guy as your Messiah for the last three and a half years, you're deceived, and you know you're deceived. And that's when Jesus, on the, on the Olivet Discourse there toward the end, I believe, chapter 24 of Matthew, 24 25, he says, at that point, those, and he's speaking to a Jewish audience, right? He says, woe to those who are pregnant nursing in those days. You who are in Judea, flee to the mountains, right? There's going to be tribulation such as never been seen since the beginning of the world. That'll be a hard time, right? People will get saved through that time. There's going to be 144,000 Jewish evangelists traveling the world, and the nation of Israel is going to be uh, very much uh, brought under the headship of Jesus Christ, which will be a great thing, but there's going to be, it's going to be hard times. So all that to say, during that first half of the tribulation period, you might make a case that Israel is going to feel like they're dwelling what? Safely. Dwelling safely. And this great peacemaker, Antichrist, arising out of a, of a resurrected, if you will, Roman Empire, maybe much like a, and again, I hope I'm not making you, I'm trying not to make you dizzy, okay? But this is all just, frankly, to me, it's good stuff. I hope you think it's at least okay stuff, okay? But according to Daniel chapter 2, right? Remember Nebuchadnezzar saw this great image, and Daniel said, oh, these are a bunch of... of uh, of world nations or world empires, right? There's going to be the Babylonians and then there's going to be the Medes and Persians and, and you, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold, the, the Babylonian empire. And then after that, there's the Greeks. And then after that, there's the Romans. And then uh, the prophecy gets a little bit kind of, frankly, a little bit obscure. But there's 10 toes on this image, right? And Daniel references that these 10 toes represent a 10-part revived Roman Empire in the latter days. What's that sound like? Like a coalition of maybe 10, a coalition of maybe 10 nations somewhere in Europe? We might call that the, rhymes with P-U, starts with E, E-U, right? We might call that the E-U, right? And the Antichrist might arise as a great peacemaker realizing we got, we got, some pretty abrupt chaos on planet Earth might arise out of that revived Roman Empire to bring peace. One of the things of peace he's going to do is going to make sure that the Jewish people can chill with this covenant of peace that he's going to promise and a promise to rebuild their temple. And so they're going to feel like they're dwelling safely. Right? Is this relevant? This is relevant. Verse 10. Thus says the Lord God, on that day it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind and you'll make an evil plan. I mean, who knows who this is? And again, I know, you know, this, these events, could, what I want us to say is, I'm going to say these events could happen today. I'm not here to say they will happen today. I'm here to say they could happen today. They could happen 500 years from now, right? But they very much could happen today. So this guy, 
could devise an evil plan. Is it possible that the leader of Russia could devise an evil plan? Is that conceivable in 2022? You're going to devise an evil plan. You'll say, I'm going to go up against the land of unwalled villages. I'll go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates, to take plunder and to take booty, to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited and against a people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods, who dwell in the midst of the land. Man, I'm just going to pick these people off. They're just up there dwelling safely. I think I'm going to come up with an evil plan and go plunder them. Now, interestingly, again, we said that these, this other coalition, right? Iran, Sudan, Libya, Turkey, right? They're Muslim nations that would love to destroy Israel, right? Russia doesn't quite share that incentive, but Russia would love to take booty, right? Would love to plunder Israel and would love to enlist some like-minded people, even if not for the same motivation, some like-minded people to come and take booty. And so uh, that's the evil plan uh, to come along the, uh, into Israel and take these people that dwell safely. Verse 13, and also, this is another interesting piece, Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish, and all their young lions will say to you, have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods to, the great, to take great plunder? So this is kind of interesting. You're going to have these, nation, these folks. They don't really come against this Russian coalition, I'll call it. They don't really come against this Russian coalition. They don't really defend Israel. But they just kind of sit on the sidelines and say, what are you guys thinking? Is that fair? So... Sheba, Dedan, that's Saudi Arabia, right? Does Saudi Arabia hate Israel today? They don't hate Israel. They're afraid of Iran. They're afraid of Iran's ability to blow up the world with nuclear warfare. But they don't really hate Israel, okay? Tarshish, different commentators have all kinds of... Um, interpretations of Tarshish. Some say Spain. You remember when Jonah got on a boat and he wanted to get as far away from God as possible or as far away from Nineveh as possible? He got on a boat headed to Tarshish. Many people say that was Spain. Some people say that was Great Britain, but it's probably somewhere way, uh, way west. Okay, way out there. Okay. And some, just for completeness, some people say where it says um, Tarshish and all their young lions. Some people say that's a reference to Britain and all the, if you will, the descendant nations of Britain, which might include us. Okay? So you got Russia, you got Iran, Sudan, Libya, Turkey, Ukraine, maybe even a little bit of Georgia coming against Israel. You got Saudi Arabia and maybe Britain or Europe or somewhere Everything, everything west saying, what are you guys doing, right? Not coming to the defense of Israel, but saying, what are you doing? That kind of fits the, again, that fits the chessboard as well. Therefore, verse 14, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, thus says the Lord God, on that day when my people Israel dwell safely, will you not know it? 
Then you will come from your place out of the where? Far north. Maybe Moscow. You and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great company and a mighty army. And so it's going to be a great company, a mighty army coming out of the far north. Again, 2.4 degrees east on, on the longitude. Verse 16, you'll come up against my people, Israel, like a cloud to cover the land. It'll be in the louder days. Again, this is in a reference to the last days. That I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am hallowed in you, O Gog, before their eyes. So uh, this will be a time when God will be declared as God and he will be glorified through all of this. Thus says the Lord God, are you he of whom I have spoken in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied? who prophesied for years in those days that I would bring you against them. So somehow um, Gog is probably going to know when this comes to pass that he's the guy that this prophecy is about. And it'll come to pass, verse 18, at that same time, when Gog comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord, that, I w that my fury will show in my face. That's something we don't want to see. For in my jealousy and in, my f in the fire of my wrath, I have spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel, so that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on the earth, and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. The mountains shall be thrown down, the steep places shall, follow, shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground. So, okay, Gog, you're going to bring this massive coalition of people. They're going to come in like a cloud, and then it's going to start out with a huge earthquake that's going to disrupt everything. Now, you might think I'm making this stuff up, but guess what? Right? Guess what? There's a fault line that runs along the Jordan Valley. There along Israel, where Israel and Jordan border, right? Runs for, um, it's called the Jordan Valley Rift. Runs 65 miles long and an average of six miles wide. Is Bible relevant? Could we conceive a coalition of Russia, Iran, and some other folks coming against the nation of Israel? Yeah. Can we conceive an earthquake in the land of Israel? Yeah. All this is very believable. I will call for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. Now let me just, this maybe has application to us just in terms of, you know, our individual dynamics. When person A is selfishly motivated or maybe even evil motivated to come against person B and there's a person C that's also motivated against, who did I say now? This is A, this is C, this is B. Love triangles are difficult. Don't ever get in one. So you got person A, hate triangles are worse than love triangles. You got person A and person C that both hate person B, but for different reasons, right? Sooner or later, have you not seen this play out in life? Is there not a high risk of person A and C deciding they hate each other? I mean, this comes out in families. This comes out in the workplace, and this comes out in prophecy, right? 
Russia maybe hates Israel. Iran maybe hates Israel, but for different reasons. Is it conceivable that Russia and Iran, both being motivated by evil, might turn on each other? That's how diplomacy works, right? So there's going to be an earthquake, and then people are going to, every man's sword is going to be against his brother. That's conceivable. Verse 22, and I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on him, on his troops, and on the many peoples who are with him, flooding rain, great hailstones, fire, and brimstone. Is that believable? It's very believable. If you believe the details, if you consider how believable the details are thus far in this chapter, this is very believable. Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. You know, the conclusion of everything God does is so we'll know that he is the Lord, right? Now, I've got to think through this. Uh, believe me, I've, I've wrestled with this one this week, okay? Imagine in 2022 that you're an unbeliever and you don't know any of this, and if you did know it, you wouldn't believe it. Imagine that for a second. Pause and put your head around that thought. You're an unbeliever. The Bible's irrelevant. You know, it's written old, fa it's old fashioned. It was for your grandma, maybe, but not for you. Right? And you look at the, and you do happen to have a phone or a tablet or something that's really cool a newspaper. We still get them delivered to our house just for fun, right? Let's say you don't have the Bible, you don't have a relationship with the Lord, but you have a newspaper. Can I just say this? No wonder the whole world's on psych medicines. Right? The very, by the way, anybody notice that we've got a world that has nations that can blow up the world however many times over? Our survival, if you're not a believer, here's what I have to offer you. Your survival, just of this planet, depends on the diplomacy, the wisdom, the integrity of not only your American leaders, but of Mr. Putin, Mr. Khomeini, whoever else is in charge of the world stage? Do you want to trust the survivability of this planet to the collective wisdom and diplomacy and just all-around ability to get along with one another to those people? No. Is it no wonder that the world's on Xanax? Yes. How about just our planet? Right? Now, I know there's different opinions on, you know, the environment and all that, okay? But even if everybody got along, if you're not a believer, the survivability of our planet is dependent upon our ability to control the environment and keep it sustainable, right? 
if you are a believer, then our job is to be compassionate to those that ought to be arguably so freaked out by what's going on in the world that we have something truly to offer them. And as far as the world itself, we should be good stewards. As far as our right as citizens, we should be good citizens. But we're just stewards of those things. Have you noticed that unbelievers get freaked out about stuff? Can I just say this? Christians should not be freaked out about politics. Now, we got a lot of politically charged people in the room. I get it. I have on good authority, we got a couple conservatives in the room. Right? Not everybody, which is good, which I appreciate. But Christians, I'm not talking about Republic, I'm not talking about Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal, I'm not talking about any of that. Christians should have a grip on the fact that God is in control. And Christians shouldn't be surprised that people that are on their way to hell are a little desperate. And we should be compassionate. We should be good stewards. I get all that. We should be good stewards of the earth. We should be good stewards of our citizenship. I get all that. But we're a little too freaked out about politics. Can I say that? Conservatives? I'm talking to conservatives. We're too freaked out about politics. God's in control. God orchestrates things according to a perfect timeline. And there is nothing we can do to change that. But there is something we can do as responsible Christians. We can have a heart for those people. We can act like we believe that the Bible is true. We can act like we believe that God has outlined a plan for the future that the way I read it, appears to be playing itself out with incredible precision. Incredible precision. And we should have reason for tremendous hope and at the same time tremendous urgency to share these truths with people. I I should expect lost people to get freaked out about politics. I should expect lost people to get freaked out about a virus. Now, again, I mean no, no insensitivity to that either, right? Almost everybody in the room has probably lost loved ones to that, to that virus. I get it. But God is way beyond anything of this earth. Way beyond anything of this earth. And we should have that perspective. And if we don't, my concern is that we're like 
school kids arguing on the playground, right? Well, your mom wears army boots. Well, no, your mom wears army boots. Nah, 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 nah. Right? What's, what's rise above? Let's say, you know what? I know you're freaked out. And if I were you, I would be too. And there's something worse than nuclear war. It's called hell. And there's a couple other battles that we read about at the beginning that are worse than this one. But this one's real. This one's relevant. This one's timely. And the Bible's true. Every single word. Now, we should take what Paul said to the Thessalonians, right? He says when he talks about prophetic stuff, he says, therefore, what? Comfort one another with these words. We have comfort. We have the comfort knowing he's in control. We have comfort knowing that he said it was all going to happen. And we have comfort knowing that we can share that comfort with others. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you are the God of all comfort. We thank you that you are the God of all history. And we thank you that you're the God of each and every one of us. That you died on a cross for each and every one of us. Lovingly and very specifically. And so, Lord, I pray that we would each and every one of us be totally surrendered to you. Knowing that time may be short. But if not, if every one of us dies of old age at 150, Lord, Come, Jesus, come. Lord, please help us to have the right perspective that we can take this message to a lost and dying world for your glory, and then they shall know that you are God. Do that in our midst, please, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.